And welcome to the 50th episode of the Even the Little Things podcast. Yes, today we'll be discussing our favorite true crime cases. Yeah, so if that sounds fun, stick around. Before we start, we just want to remind everyone that we're not professionals in any field and that this podcast is just talk about the big and even the little things teens go through. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Even Little Things podcast. And today is a very special episode um, because Duani and I are going to be discussing our favorite true crime cases. Now, if you didn't know, Duani and I are very into true crime. We um, we're really interested in true crime, and we actually um, bonded over true crime podcasts when we were um, in freshman when we were in our freshman year. I mean, obviously, we were already. Um, really good friends before that but we just grew even closer after listening to true crime podcast and it really gave us the idea to start this podcast so we thought we'd pay a little homage and share some of our favorite true crime cases um because it's just so interesting and um yeah we just I don't know. It was really fun researching. I mean, I guess it wasn't really fun because that's it's not fun. And you know what I mean? But it was really interesting to research all of these cases. And yeah, we can't wait to talk to you guys about that. We prepared two stories um, and we're going to go pretty in depth. So um, just before we start, we have a few disclaimers. Um, first of all, these stories are um, these um, cases. Actually, I shouldn't call them stories. These cases can get very um, gruesome and gory and things like that. So if you are not a fan of that kind of stuff, I would definitely sit this one out. Um, we are not going to be offended if you don't want to listen. Um, we totally understand this is not for everyone to listen to you know not everybody is into true crime or anything you know scary things like that um and we totally understand um if you don't want to do that that being said we're going to try to keep it um pretty as as um as non-explicit as we can like we're not going to go into the huge details about like blood and all that stuff but just to let you know there will be some explicit content yeah, so we just want to give you some trigger warnings about some topics that might be difficult to hear. So if you're not very comfortable with that, that's okay. You don't have to listen to this episode. Um, but just know that some of these stories may or may not have some, um, like very bad things happening. So again, if it makes you uncomfortable, it's totally fine. You don't have to listen to this episode, but, um, um also a few other disclaimers uh sorry um yeah we have um we just want to say that we're also like not experts and we don't want to be like disrespectful to anyone involved in these stories we're just trying to report on them and you know tell our audience about them so um yeah we don't mean to be disrespectful to anyone involved in these stories and all these crimes are very horrible and we don't condone any of these actions and also i just want to say that even though we are very interested in true crime um we don't like think this is like a fun or anything like that like we don't have like a weird like obsession with it or anything like that it's just interesting to us and we're not trying to make fun of anyone or anything and um it's just truly interesting to us so we're just interested in researching true crime and we also pay respects to the victims um and as Duani said um before each story we'll give a little trigger warning so if they have like specific trigger warnings then we will I'll let you know yes um and i think those are all our uh, disclaimers and so hannah do you want to start yeah so the first story i have 
is kind of known as the watcher. And so if you are triggered by any sort of stalking or um, harassment of that kind, I would make sure that you stay out of this one, stick it out. Um, and so, yeah, this one has interested me for a while because it is still unsolved as of now. Um, so the watcher or otherwise known as six, 657 Boulevard um, is about this family, um, the Brodises. Um, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, I have no idea. So I just I hope that I am. So the Brodises um, in about 2014. So it's pretty recent. The Brodises um, were they just bought this new house. Um, they're a family of five. Um, and it was at 657 Boulevard um, in New Jersey. And it was this beautiful house. And um, it was just really nice. Um, it was white and carpeted and just it was just a perfect house for them it was a dream house and you know um Derek Brutus and his wife Maria they just loved it they fell in love with it and they knew that it was the perfect house um to raise their children in and you know um I read from a, a couple articles that Maria the wife was raised in Westfield New Jersey and the house was a few blocks from her childhood home and you know Derek the husband grew up in working class Maine and then moved himself up way up the ladder at an insurance company in Manhattan to become a senior vice president with a large salary so this couple was doing very very well and you know they finally saved up enough money for their dream house for their three children and them and this house was pretty expensive for new jersey it's 1.3 million dollars so it's actually pretty expensive overall and the brodises were just so over the moon about 657 boulevard um and so they moved into this house um, and that's when the eerie things begin to happen so they first receive a letter um and the letter is pretty hostile um the letter reads how did you end up here did 657 Boulevard call you to talk to you with its force within? So that's pretty creepy, right? I mean, um, I don't know about you, but if you were living in your house and you got that, um, Duani, if you were living in your house and you got that letter, wouldn't you be pretty creeped out? I would, I would be very creeped out. And the fact that I listened to so much true crime would creep me out even more. Like it would not be something that like I would ignore or think was like a joke because that, and the way it's written also sounds very scary. Yeah. So um, the letter continues. And it, I think this is the first letter. I've, I had a hard time trying to find out which is the first letter and which is the second letter. But I think this is the first letter. And it reads, 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now. And as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. So as you can see, this is very, very scary. The 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 last line is very freaky. That's um scary. Like I will find out. Like that just sounds very uh frightening. Yes. And so this is like even before they begin, you know, they begin the moving in process. You know how hard that is when you're buying a new house, you're moving in and all that stuff. So the letter um, also identified the Brodus's Honda minivan, as well as certain workers renovating the home. And so it says, I see that you already that you have 
flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you couldn't destroy the house as it was supposed to be. Um, this person wrote and then says, tis, 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 bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. Um, and so that is, that's very creepy. Definitely. Um, it just sounds like a warning, like that something's going to happen to them. Yeah, exactly. So obviously, um, these people were getting a little freaked out, but you know, it's just one letter and there was no like, you know, direct, um, threats yet. So they were like, okay, well maybe it's just some silly neighborhood kid who is, you know, throwing around some trying to be funny to the neighbors, even though that's not really that funny, but you know how kids are, you know, sometimes they just make really bad decisions. So Derek and Maria were like, okay, um, this is fine. Like, it's fine. We're still going to move in. It was a little frightening, but it began to get even more frightening when they finally brought their children around, um, and uh, this is what the this is what the letter said um, after they saw that this whoever it was saw the children. It says, do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them too. The use of the word young bloods is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's um, very creepy. Like, I feel like if I got something like that, I would just, like, not move into that house because I would just be very scared, like, always watching over my shoulder, even if it was, like, a joke or something. Yes, it is very creepy. So um, then the Brodices realized that the envelope had no return address, and um, the only thing that was written on it was, who am I? So this person's obviously mm, anonymous, and... um. I don't know about you, but if I had children, that would be very, very creepy. Like somebody calling my children young blood and like spying on us. And um, yeah, it's just it's just creepy. And then the letter finally concluded um, that it says the letter concluded with welcome, my friends, welcome. Let the party begin. And then it was signed um, and it signed and it said the watcher. So obviously Derek Brodus, the dad was pretty alarmed when he saw this. Like, imagine buying your dream home and then um, you receive this very frightening letter. Um, so it was very scary. And they were like, okay, so was this something that happened before or after we moved in? Like, was this happening before? So they contacted the old owners, the Woods, and it was John and Andrea Woods, the couple who sold them the 657 Boulevard. And they asked them, they said, have you ever gotten a letter from the watcher? And um, because the watcher had written, I asked the Woods to bring me young blood and it looks like they listened. Um, and so the, the Woods, the Woods, Andrea Woods and John Woods said, no, we have never in the 20 you know years we were living in this house, we have never gotten a letter like that. Um, except we got one letter, uh, before you moved in. <laughs> so, um, if you're selling a house, uh, I don't know about you, Dwani, but don't you think that you should disclose to people that you got a very ominous letter? Yeah. Like, I feel like if you are, if you just want to sell the house, then I guess like you wouldn't tell someone, like, I feel like 
the right thing to do is like okay so this house gets creepy letters so um now like make your decision do you want it or not because i feel like most of the time people would say no which is why like they never said that the house used to get letters before as well yeah but it's actually illegal to lie about that kind of stuff when you're selling a house you have to disclose all the information you know um i know you watch true crime so if someone has ever deceased in the house they have to tell um people that someone had died in the house so if someone's ever died in your house they have to tell people i'm pretty sure that's the the law i mean i think they have to disclose any sort of like accident or anything like that so people know what they're getting into um i could be wrong and that could be just in certain states but that's what i've um read i think and then so then the woods were like okay we're sorry that we put you through that and they went to the police together the woods and the brodises and um the detective told the Brodises to not tell any of the neighbors that they were getting letters because now all of them were suspects. And I think that makes sense. Um, but I think that can be extremely isolating for them. I mean, I bet this was a really hard time for them. Like they just bought this new house and, you know, houses are expensive. Like you've got to put down the down payment and you got to do all this stuff. And to find out that your beautiful new house is basically ruined by a creepy stalker letter writing dude. That is pretty disappointing. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. So the Brodises spent the next coming weeks on very high alert. Um, Derek canceled work trips. And um, whenever Maria would take the kids to the house, she would yell their names and make sure that they were in her sight. And um, yeah, it was just... It was just it was just really hard for them because they were kind of living in fear and um, it was just really scary. Um, And then um, two weeks after that first letter arrived, Maria stopped by the house to look at some paint samples and check the mail. And she recognized a thick black lettering on the card shaped envelope and called the police. So um, the watcher had written to them again and it said this time. Welcome again to your new house at 657 Boulevard, the watcher wrote. The workers have been busy, and I have been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they have they found out what is in the walls yet? In time, they will tell. That, that is just creepy. Like, I don't know. It, it kind of gives me, like, conjuring vibes, like haunted house vibes. And I just, I would not move into that house. Yes, it's very, very creepy. And then, um, I don't know why, but there's like the whole thing about have they found what is in the walls yet? Like, that is super oh. creepy. Like, if I were the Brodises, I would like knock down the walls. I'm like, what the heck is in the walls? Like, that is creepy. That is creepy AF. Like, that is just so bad. Um, and so then, this time in the letter, the watcher had addressed Derek and Maria directly, but he, um, this person like misspelled their names. Instead of writing Brodus the right way, they wrote it like B-R-A-D-D-U-S. So they wrote like Bradis. Um, and so people were wondering like, were the, was the watcher, like, was this person close enough to hear the Brodus's contractors like address them? Because they obviously didn't know the Brodus's enough to write their names correctly, but they knew how to like phonetically spell it as, you know what I'm talking about? So like, yeah. let's say you were saying my name out loud. 
actually maybe your name is a better example. Let's say I was saying Duani out loud. I think someone could phonetically try to spell it, but unless they knew who you were, they wouldn't be able to spell your name correctly, I would assume. Yeah, because like when I meet like new people or teachers or sometimes like for the very first time, they'll spell my name like D-W-A-N-I because that's how it's like phonetically mm-hmm. like sounds. Like so they forget the H. So like I definitely understand what you're saying. Yeah, so it was very creepy, and that's what they were wondering. And then the watcher also boasted in their letter that they learned about the family in the preceding weeks, especially the children. And the letter um, identified the Brodus's three children by birth order and by their nicknames, um, the ones that Maria had been yelling. So Maria had been yelling the nicknames outside, and the letter um, referred to the children as these, as these nicknames. And it says, I am pleased to know your names now and the name of the young blood you have brought me. It said, you certainly say their names often. The letter asked about one child in particular whom the, um, who, and it's just so creepy. So the letter basically asked about this one child in particular and, um, it was basically um, talking about how they, the writer says that they have seen the child use an easel inside, um, to draw. And it says, and in quotes, is she the artist in the family? Question mark. Oh no, that is creepy. I feel like there's some hidden cameras in there. Yes, that's. I watched a video and someone said they should check the house for hidden ha- cameras because that is so creepy. And so here the the letter continues. So, um, six hundred fifty seven Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of this house. Have you found all the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? Or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedroom facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in the which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and the doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher, and I have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Wood family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I passed by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Brodus family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard. And now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving day. Moving in day. You know I will be watching. Oh, this is just giving me very creepy vibes. Like, there's definitely some cameras in there. And um, I... Uh, like at this point it doesn't feel like there's a kid messing with them it feels like someone's very serious about all of this yeah it's like very sinister right like it doesn't feel like a joke definitely not like i would move out like the, the second that i got the first letter i would just sell the house again yeah, so Derek and Maria stopped bringing their kids to the house and they were no longer sure um, if they should move in. And so then a couple weeks later, they get a third letter and it's basically like, where have you been? Like the watcher wrote like that 657 Boulevard is missing you, quote unquote. And so just to give you an idea, this neighborhood is very like calm and idyllic and um, it's 
one of the richest neighborhoods in America. It's very wealthy, like the 18th wealthiest in New Jersey. It's like super nice. And so not a lot of crime happens, um, happened there. And so it's very strange that all of a sudden, um, that these letters were showing up in this very nice neighborhood. Um, and so, um, yeah, so the, the protuses were very, shocked and so obviously they did not want to um move in because someone was basically threatening their kids and threatening their lives and so what they did was they put the house on the market and they put it for like 1.5 million dollars <coughs> sorry and of course no one wanted to buy it then they put it at 1.3 and of course no one wanted to buy it <coughs> then eventually they decided that they should just take it off the market and um, they would just rent out the house. So they rented out the house to this family and um, the family w- moved in and they were like, um, the family moved in and they they only moved in um, with the clause that if there was ever a letter, they could move out. And so, of course, guess what came? A letter. Yeah, a letter came. <coughs> so, yeah, another letter came, and it was addressed to them, and it was very, very, very creepy. Um, it 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 was just very creepy. Um, but um, the letter has never been released. That one has never been released because it's actually even more gruesome and more disturbing. And um, investigators and the family just wish that. No one has, should see that letter, so it is not released, so I cannot read it to you. Um, but yeah, after that, the Broduses decided that they would like to bulldoze the entire house down. Um, so they tried to get permission from the state of New Jersey, and the state declined their offer. And so, yeah, um, not much has happened since then. Um, no, no more letters have come since 2017. Um, so... Um, this started in 2014 and the last letter that ever came came in 2017. And since then there has been no movement. Um, as of right now, I don't know who lives in 657 Boulevard. All I know is that this is very creepy. And I think that it's definitely very targeted towards the protuses. I really don't think that this was a joke or anything like that. And so some of the theories people have, um, is number one, that they think that the protuses actually wrote them themselves. Um, uh, however, I, I don't think that they did. I just feel like that's a lot of trauma. Yeah, I just feel like that's a lot of work for, like, no necessary reason. Like, I guess the only reason, like, they would do something like that was for, like, fame. But um, I'm not sure someone goes to, like, that much extent to, like, gain fame or something like that. Exactly. Um, and, you know, if they wanted fame, I think they could do it in a different way. Um, people were also saying, like, maybe they wanted money for the house or, like, to get the house for free or something like that. But I think that's, like, a really weird way to, like, get money. I really don't think that's, like, a good idea. Um, and then people were saying that maybe some previous owners, like, kin, next of kin um, of the house, because um, the house was actually sold um, to people for, like, $1. Because if you do, like, this um, transaction thing where they have to take away your house. If you sold it to someone else for $1, they can give it back to you later. So people were saying, oh, maybe there's like a family who has an obsession with their past house. Mm-hmm. Oh, true. That could be that too. Um, and then people were saying, well, maybe it's just someone who's sick, like a sick joke. 
um, someone who just want, has no time just messing around with this poor family. And yeah, it's just never been solved. And I just find it personally super, super creepy. That That is very creepy. Like, like I said before, I would like move out. Um, and that's just, it just gives me very creepy vibes. Like I just, I would not let, like staying there at all. Me neither. Yeah, so that was my first case. Now, Duwani, do you want to go on to yours? Yes, I really liked yours. That one was very interesting, but very creepy. Yeah, very creepy. <laughs> okay, so mine is about Nanny Doss, and I'm not sure if many people have heard of her, but she's also referred to as the Giggling Nanny. So basically, her story starts. Um. Um, she was born to a family of farmers in 1905. This is a long time ago in Blue Mountain, Alabama. And then her father restricted his children. So there were five of them and he would not allow their, ch- their children to go to school, but rather they had to stay home to work on household chores and then to tend the family farm. So that's what Nanny did when she was younger. She stayed home and she helped out around the house and the farm. And then at age seven, she suffered a head injury while riding a train, and that injury changed her life forever. Um, they don't like specify how, but they do say that um, she had some like problems, and then her parents also treated her very differently after that. So there was something with that. And then by the time that she was a teenager, she dreamed of living this like, idyllic life with her future husband, and she would read these Roman ma- romance magazines, and in those magazines, there is a column called the Lonely Hearts column, and she used to spend a lot of time looking through the Lonely Hearts column, and people speculate that people speculate that she used that to like escape from her abusive father while her mother turned a blind eye because like I said with that head injury her parents started abusing her a lot um her father would beat them um just do very horrible things to them and her mother never really cared she just turned a blind eye and this is horrible mm mm-hmm And then one of the worst things that her dad did was at the age of 16, he forced her to marry this man that she had only known for four months. And his name was Charlie Braggs. And her and her husband had four children from 1921 to 1927. And at the end of 1927, their marriage fell apart. So the couple lived with Braggs' mother, who's the husband. um, But she had the same abusive type of behavior as Doss's father. So um, the husband's mom would again like beat them, yell at them, treat them the same way that her dad used to. That is and, really awful. Mm-hmm. She just had like a very doomed beginning from the start. I know yeah. you've read like two crime. A lot of these people don't have like very good childhoods. But um and so this is what people say um kickstarted her murdering spree. So in that same year, two children under mysterious circumstances died. So two of her children, no one knows how, no one knows why, but they just died in the same year. Like they were perfectly healthy and then suddenly they died without an apparent cause. That is really, that's, wouldn't that get investigated? Like, I feel like if maybe one child, that's a mistake, but two, that's a little, that's a little fish. That's a little fishy. 
I feel like it was like the early 1920s, 1900s, and a lot of like children were dying from sicknesses. So maybe that's why they never really. Oh, this was the 1920s? Yeah, she was born in 1905. So she had. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense. I was going to say in the modern era, like (laughs) if two children went missing at the same year. So after their children died is when the couple divorced. Um, the husband took the older daughter with him and then left the newborn with um, Nanny Dobbs. And then just after one year after her divorce, she married a second husband. And again, he was a bad man. He was abusive alcoholic from Florida named Frank. And they met through the Lonely Hearts column, the column that Nanny had spent a lot of her childhood looking at. And um, Frank had wrote her a lot of romantic letters, and Nanny would respond with racy letters and photos. And despite the abuse, the marriage lasted 16 years until 1945. And during this period, Doss likely killed her own newborn granddaughter a few days later after the birth by using a hairpin to stab her in the brain. So um, her her child had children, right? So her grandchildren, obviously. Mm -hmm. And um, someone had seen Nanny with a hairpin, and she was holding that to the granddaughter's head. Um, And so when the baby died, they examined her head, and they saw a stab there, and they figured that it might be Nanny. I mean, again, no one was able to pinpoint if it was exactly her. So um, they, like, let it go. But someone did mention after the baby had died, that they had seen Nanny with a hairpin and that hairpin matched like the stab wound that was on her head. And then a few months later, after her granddaughter died, her two-year-old grandson, Robert, died of asphyxiation while in Doss's care. And again, like I said, the two children, um, the two grandchildren belonged to um, the oldest child of Nanny. So now obviously, Two children have died under her care. Two grandchildren have died under her care. Um, Yet, no one really suspected anything. No one did anything. No one called the police. Um, No one confronted her. No one did anything. And I guess they just all blamed it in natural causes. But the thing is that Nanny just happened to be there every single time one of those children died. That is wild that she has not, she did not get any sort of investigation even in the 19 like 20s she got away with so much and then her sorry like sorry to interrupt you but like also the fact that she's killing like children yeah i don't know what it is with the children but um with her traumatic childhood um the abusive men she keeps marrying because like like i said it's a pattern the first man that she married and then his mom the second man she married is an abusive so i'm not sure if that is what has caused her to kill people but i'm guessing that's what it is and then the next on the murderer's list was Frank, her second husband. Um, following like a drunken night, um, and this was at the end of World War II, Nanny mixed a secret ingredient into his hidden jar of moonshine. If you don't know what moonshine is, it's a type of um, alcohol drink. And so basically she put some type of secret ingredient into his moonshine, and then he was dead in less than a week. And then... 
people assumed that he died of food poisoning. So even though, again, it, people saw that Nanny was there with the hairpin for her first grandchild, and then the second grandchild died in her care, and now her husband died, yet people are not suspecting her. They just suspected he died of food poisoning. What? <laughs> Oh, okay. I feel like at this point it's almost ridiculous. It's like she's like a serial killer, it's and like I have no idea. Like what was going through people's head? Like her family members, um, the husband, the um, the oldest daughter whose two children died. Like no one is doing anything, and she's just killing children and husbands. And I don't even know what she's doing. But, uh, Meanwhile, after he died, she collected enough insurance money from his um, from her husband's death to buy a plot of land near Jacksonville in, um, in North Carolina. Um, another man, Arlie Lanning of Lexington, North Carolina, died in 1952, several years after he responded to a Lonely Hearts classified ad placed by DOS. So again, the Lonely Hearts column keeps showing up. It's the one that she was obsessed with when she was younger. And so um, he responded to that column, the the one, the ad that she specifically placed. And a few years later, he ended up dying. Um, and again, they had gotten married too. So again, this is like another husband, her third husband. And so... Uh, Playing the doting wife, Doss added poison to one of Lanning's meals, and he died shortly thereafter. Again, um, the doctors attributed his death to a heart attack due to alcohol because he was a heavy drinker. So she is just killing husband after husband, children after children, and yet no one is suspecting her at all. That is absolutely horrific. Like, that's actually horrible. I just have like no idea what these people are doing. Like four four children have died, two children, two grandchildren, two husbands, and yet she just gets away with it every single time. How? <laughs> I do not know. And then <laughs> and then Doss's next true love was Richard Morton of Kansas. And although he spent um a lot of time with other women while he was married to Doss, um she was just attracted to him and they um, got married. However, Doss hadn't known that her husband, her fourth husband, was um, looking or going after other women and she, because she was distracted with something else. At that time, her mother needed a caretaker after she had fallen and broken her hip in 1953 after her father had passed away. And another strange thing, a few months after Doss had agreed to take care of her mother, the woman suddenly died without warning. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Short gravy. Shortly <laughs> after her mother's death, one of Dossie's sisters died after having contact with Nanny Dossie. So again, after her mother died, one of her sisters contacted um, Nanny, and guess what? She died too. Oh my god. So this woman is not even just killing children anymore. She's, which is horrible, like probably more horrible than like the adult. But like, she's killing children, family members, babies, grandkids. She's killing everybody. It seems like she's just killing anyone she can get her, she can get her hands on. Yeah. But, um, uh, 
And again, she was like way too consumed with her mother's health to find out about her fourth husband's affairs. But after she, um, this is in quotes, took care, meaning, you know, took care, like they died. Um, she turned her full attention to her cheating husband. And you can guess again what happened. He died under mysterious circumstances. Uh, her final victim was Samuel Doss of Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was neither a drunk nor abusive. He just simply made the mistake of telling his wife that she could only read magazines and watch television shows that, for, that were for educational purposes. So Samuel Doss was now her fifth husband. And what led her to kill him was that he told her he could. She could only read magazines and watch television shows that were educational. So again, her Lonely Hearts column, where um, all the romantic stuff, that's not educational. So her husband forbid her to read that and watch TV shows that were similar to that. And with that simple mistake, she laced his prune cake with poison. And um, he surprisingly survived. And he spent a month recovering in the hospital. And then a few days after he got home, poison-laced coffee finished him off. So when he came back home, now instead of poisoning his cake with, um, instead of poisoning his cake, she poisoned his coffee, and he died. I just have a question. So he when he went to the hospital, did he know that his cake had poison in it? Uh, did they tell him that? That's what I'm getting to. And so this is where she made her mistake because while the doctor was treating her fifth husband, um, he suspected foul play during his month-long hospital stay. But the doctor could find no proof. So Uh. the doctor convinced Doss, who was about to receive two life insurance benefits after the fifth husband's death, to let him perform an autopsy. And she had agreed. Um, And she had agreed. And in that autopsy, the doctor found huge amounts of arsenic in his body and alerted the police. And finally, in 1954, she was arrested. She confessed to killing four out of her five husbands, but she did not confess to killing her family members. So she didn't confess to killing her two children, her two grandchildren, um, her sister, her mother. She did not confess to any of that. And um, at this point, finally, authorities exhumed some of Doss's previous victims and performed the same autopsies. And those people that had died under mysterious circumstances, they finally found extraordinary amounts of arsenic and rat poison in their bodies. And it turns out that that was a common household ingredient at that time. And it was the best way to kill people without anyone suspecting anything, which is how she got away with killing like 11 people. Wow. Wow. But I was just saying because if the husband knew, so the husband did not know that his um thing was poison. He just thought it was he was sick. Yeah. And so she took him to the hospital. Oh uh, um, okay. and he survived. And then again when he came back, oh. he killed him. Cause I was gonna say, if he knew that it was poison, why would he come back to um back to the poisoner? But that's wild, like what is she like the lonely hearts killer or something like that like um, she's called the grinning granny so the grinning granny's oh. the grinning granny's calling card was to poison her loved ones with drink or food spiked with poison um in all authorities suspected she killed as many as 12 people most of whom were blood related 
And um, again, remember when I mentioned that at seven years old, she uh, had an accident and she was hurt. Mm -hmm. She blamed her murderous escapades on her brain injury. And um, meanwhile, journalists gave her the name Giggling Granny because every time she would tell her story about how she killed her husband, she would laugh. Mm. <laughs> um, and she even had a surprising motive for her male companions. Like she wasn't after the insurance money after they died. In her own words, Doss's romance magazines had a profound effect on her psyche. I was searching for the perfect mate, the real romance in life. And then when one husband became too much, she simply killed him and moved on to the next. And since most oh. of her husbands had health issues such as alcoholism or heart conditions, the doctors never suspected anything. And she died in prison in 1964 while serving a life sentence. And that is the story of Nanny Dossie. Wow. That is crazy. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I, I think that's crazy that she got away with that many murders. And the fact that it all could have been prevented if people were just paying a little bit more attention or cared enough. Mm -hmm. Like while I was reading that, every time she committed a murder, I was like, are people not concerned? Because like all of her family members are dying around her and she seems to be the common denominator. But people yeah. are just ignoring it for some reason. But um, I'm yeah. still surprised how she got away for so long with killing these many people. Yeah. And I mean, I think one or two people. OK, that could be an accident. But three, four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Even in the nineteen, like I don't care, whatever. That is strange. That is strange, and that's really messed up. And though I feel bad that she had an abusive childhood, like I don't think having an abusive childhood really um allows you, like it doesn't give you a free pass to be a murderer or like do horrible things to other people. So definitely. It's just, I've seen that be like a common factor in a lot of these people, like they have bad childhoods, but again, that is like not, that is not an excuse <laughs> to just start killing people. Um, you know, if you can seek help, you should seek help. But um, I, I mean, like you said, I feel bad for her, but just what she did was absolutely terrible. She had like no remorse and she would laugh. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And speaking of bad childhoods, I think that I will go on to my second case, um, which is called the Jennifer Pan case. And Dwani, have you ever heard of this one before? I have not heard of that one. Okay, so this one's pretty interesting. So Jennifer Pan was born June 17th, 1986, and she is a Vietnamese-Canadian woman um, who, um, yes, she was a Vietnamese-Canadian woman, and her parents were haunt. Pan and um no Han Pan and Bic Pan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but I'm pretty sure that's what their names are. And they were immigrants from Chinese, um, from the Chinese dysphoria in Vietnam, and they moved to Canada um to start a better life for their children. So Han um was born and educated in Vietnam and moved to Canada in 1979 as a political refugee and Bic also immigrated as a refugee. Um the couple married in Toronto and they went on to live in Scarborough. Um their two children as I mentioned before Jennifer um she was born in 1986 and their son Felix was born in 1989. Um the pa 
Hans worked at a international auto parts manufacturer, and Han worked as a tool and die maker, while Bick made car parts. Um, the couple persistently worked hard for their money to ensure that their children had the upbringing and opportunities they themselves had missed out on. So as you can tell, it's like the classic immigrant story, um, moving to um, somewhere else for a better life, whether that's America, Canada, in their case, Canada. And um, yeah, so Han and Bic, they were um, a pretty regular immigrant couple, Asian immigrant couple, and they, because they saved so much money, they were able to port- purchase a very large house um, in a greater area, Toronto, and um, this was right near a large Asian popularity uh, population, so they felt right at home, and um, they even got nice cars, and Bic drove a Lexus, and Han drove a Mercedes. So these are pretty nice cars, guys. And um, overall, they accumulated a lot of wealth, um, over $200,000 in savings. So they were doing pretty well for themselves. Like they were doing really well. And obviously, they wanted their children to do the best as well. So that's where we go into Jennifer. Um, so Jennifer, um, um, she was um, their first daughter. And um, Han and Bic really, really wanted Jennifer to succeed. And, you know, as... Um, as a daughter, I know what that's like. I really know that, you know, your parents really want you to succeed. Yeah, definitely. My parents always telling me they want what's best for me and they just want me to build a good life for myself. Yeah, so Jennifer took piano lessons at the age of four, and she also took figure skating lessons, and she was actually really, really good at figure skating. And for a long time, they thought that maybe she would even go to the Olympics. So she was super, super good, um, but unfortunately, she had an injury, and she had to drop figure skating. Um, And that's really unfortunate, because I would have loved to see her, you know, be in the Olympics. Um, and so Jennifer attended this private secondary school and she played flute in the school band. Um, and yeah, like she basically had a normal upbringing. Well, sort of normal, except for the fact that, as I mentioned before, um, Han and Bic were very, very strict. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this term before, but the term tiger parents Yes, definitely. Um, ones are very or protective, very strict, um, mm-hmm. very like rule based. I would say. Yes. Um, they were her parents were seen as the classic tiger parents, with her dad Han being the classic tiger dad, and her mom Bick being his reluctant accomplice. So you know, again, I think in a lot of people's culture, there is this whole especially like immigrants, uh, Asian immigrants, there's this whole um, thing about, you know, the husband being the head of the house and the wife following. So I think they follow those very similar um, standard, I would say, traditional values and roles. And they really wanted their children to do good. So they were the classic tiger parents. Um, And so they really, really, really wanted Jennifer to succeed. And they were very strict on her. They did not let her date boys. They did not let her see very many friends. They wanted her to have good grades. And by good grades, I don't mean like, you know, get a few Bs or whatever. They wanted her to have straight A's. Um, They didn't want her to do anything that they didn't like. So they basically would pick Jennifer up when class ended each day and monitor every single extracurricular activity closely. Um, Yeah. And so she never was allowed to go to any school dances or activities that weren't school related. Um, And so she never went to any parties. And yeah, like even um, as we'll get to later, 
year, even when she was in quote unquote university, she never uh, went to any parties. Um, and so even though her parents and, you know, her, her parents, they thought this was going well. So they thought that Jennifer had straight A's. Um, but actually, this was not true at all. Jennifer actually was not getting good grades at all, except for music. And she started to forge report cards um, using false templates to show her parents that she got straight A's when she did not. Um, and she even failed calculus in 12th grade. So um, when she was in 12th grade, she applied to Ryerson University and she wanted to go early admissions and she accepted. Um, but unfortunately, because she failed calculus, they rescinded her early admission. Um, and I don't know about you, but for Jennifer, she said that that felt like a failure to her. Um, so I don't know. Have you ever experienced like failure and not wanting to tell your parents? Yeah, definitely. And I just, I, I can just understand how devastated she must have been um, with having such a controlled childhood and then, um, you know, getting into some university that she really wanted to and only to find out that, you know, you're, you're actually not going to attend there. So like, I can understand like her pain. Yes. Um, hold on. I got to see something for a second. Um, Yes. Um, and so, yeah, it was very disappointing for her. And so she didn't want to show her parents that. So she began to lie even more. And she just said that she got into Ryerson University and she was going. And she also um, did not finish high school. So she actually didn't even finish high school. And she pretended to her parents that she finished high school as well. And so she began to maintain this lie that she went to um, Ryerson University. And during the meantime, she would work at a restaurant and she was also a piano instructor for money. So, um, in order to um, keep up the charade that Jennifer did not, you know, was going to college, she pretended like she had won scholarships so that, um, uh, that, so that she, her dad and mom would not have to pay for her tuition because obviously they could tell if she was not doing that. And she also lied and said that she needed to stay with a friend near campus throughout the week so she didn't have to spend so much money on gas money. Um, but actually, instead of a friend, she was staying with her boyfriend, Daniel. That's right. Jennifer had a boyfriend and that was a big no-no for um her parents. As I said before, her parents did not want her to date boys. And I will remind you, she's about like 18, 19 at this time. So she should be allowed to date people. But her parents were very, very strict. And I understand that's very frustrating for her. But yeah, their tensions were growing. And she was secretly dating this boyfriend. So they did not know that she was dating this boyfriend. And she lied to stay with him throughout the week. Um, so eventually, she had to graduate Ryerson University. And um, then she decided that she would lie and say that she got um, acceptance to the pharmacology program at the University of Toronto, which is very prestigious. And so she even, um, to lie, to go with that lie, she even purchased secondhand textbooks and started watching pharmacology videos and taking notes and pretending like she took them in class and showed them to her parents. So she was keeping up with the lies. Um, and yeah, so she would spend time with her boyfriend and, you know, you know, yeah, he, she would spend time with her boyfriend and not do anything all day except for spend time with her boyfriend and go to work. And life was pretty good. She was able to keep up the charade for four years now. Um, yeah. And so 
Um, and again, you know, she wasn't allowed to be doing any of this stuff. Um, so while pretending to complete her degree at the University of Toronto, Pan told her, I mean, Jennifer told her parents that she had to start working uh, as a volunteer at this hospital. And so she started working there. Um, but her parents began to get suspicious because they were like, where's your hospital ID? And where's your uniform? Um, and so to track their daughter in the lie, they actually followed her to work. They drove her to work and they were like, okay, show me where exactly you work. And so Jennifer was caught because how else was she going to keep the lie? Like once she gets to the hospital, they're going to be like, you don't work here. Um, so yeah, she was caught in the lie. And because um, because she was caught in the lie, she decided to tell her parents the truth. Um, but she didn't tell them the whole truth. She just told them half the truth. So she told them that she did not go to college. And she told them that she was actually staying with her boyfriend. But she didn't tell them that she didn't complete high school because you know, why tell all the lies, I guess. Um, so yeah, her parents were very, very disappointed. And as I said, these were tiger parents, they were very upset that their daughter did not graduate college, they were very upset that she had a boyfriend. And so her parents were like, you are not allowed to see Daniel, you're not allowed to see him at all. And you're gonna go to work every day as a piano teacher, you're gonna quit that restaurant, you're not gonna see Daniel, you're gonna do piano lessons, and you're gonna um, work until you can get an acceptance into real college. So yeah, at this time, Jennifer was 24. And she was living with her parents. And they had taken away her cell phone. They have said she can't date anybody. Um, they said that she can only do one job and that she must work until she gets into a real college. Um, and so because she was never allowed to talk or see her boyfriend, even even sneaking out, um, which she did do a few times, Daniel, her boyfriend got tired of her. Uh, I'm being serious like yeah he got tired of her and he basically broke up with her because he was like hey y'all like I am not gonna date you anymore like you you know you um you you you, you we can't spend time with each other so they broke up uh, but Jennifer was in love quotation marks with Daniel so in order to um, get Daniel back, she pretended like Daniel's girlfriend had a gang come over to her house and basically sexual assault her and rob her house, um, which was um, not true. Her His girlfriend did not um, cause a gang to come to her house and rob it. Um, but yeah. And That's then true. what are you going to say? That's like extreme. Like she is willing yeah. to like say a gang came to her house and like her dedication to like keeping all the lies. And I just feel like her parents, I feel like I can sense where the story is going. And like her parents are like the extreme case of like tiger parents, like being 24 and at home, like there's nothing wrong with living with your parents after college or in college, but like having your phone taken away and still being like monitored, I can like sense her frustration. Yeah. And so eventually Jennifer started becoming friends with this guy from high school and um 
he basically liked to boast that he was like a criminal. He liked to rob people at gunpoint and sorry, knife point. And um, he liked to he um, he told her that he once thought about killing his dad. So that kind of planted a seed in Jennifer's head. She was like, hey, life would be so much better if my dad was gone. Oh, no. That is horrible. So what she did was she paid Andrew $1,500 to kill her father in the parking lot of his workplace. But Andrew, I don't know what happened, but maybe $1,500 was not enough. Maybe he was just joking. Maybe he got scared, but he actually didn't do it. Um, But that thought lingered in Jennifer's head. And eventually Jennifer and Daniel got back together. And after they got back together, they decided together that they would not only just kill Jennifer's dad, but they would murder her parents as well. Um, and they calculated that since they she would murder her parents, she would inherit $500,000 and the two of them could live happily ever after and live off of the $500,000 they would make after they would murder her parents. Oh, God. Um, first of all, that is the worst idea I've ever heard of. Like, the better idea would be like running away. Like killing your parents because you want to be with the guy. I I mean I understand that the parents are very very controlling, but I feel like the smartest or like not the smartest, but like the worst best decision you can make is to like run away. Like killing your parents. Wow, that's like going to the extremes. It is very extreme, and so they hired a professional hitman uh, for ten thousand dollars to murder her parents. Um, and this, these people like contacted a bunch of people to help. And they basically, um, on the, in November, um, Jennifer unlocked the front door. She said goodnight to her mom and dad. And she went upstairs and then they, um, faked a fake home invasion. And, um, the men, the hitmen and her, yeah, basically the hitmen came into the house and they killed her mother. Um, and they badly injured, um, her brother, and they ch- attempted to kill her father. Um, and then they demanded the money in the house, ransacked to the main bedroom, and the three men took Vic and Han to the basement and shot them multiple times. Uh, as I said before, Vic was killed, but Han survived. Um, and so that was a big ooh because now somebody is living. So yeah, so even though Jennifer thought that she would be um, let off the hook because it looks like a home invasion, after some investigation, um, it the police found out that there's something very fishy. And then it was also, um, also, as I said, Han survived and so did her brother. So they were able to actually testify against her and... Um, 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 Jennifer went into interview with the police, and eventually she admitted that she hired the murderers. Um, but she didn't admit that she hired to kill. Um, she but she she claimed that she hired them to kill her instead of her parents. Um, and the, then the interrogating officer was like, "Yo, um, we can tell when you're lying. There's like a simulator, and because of that." Jennifer confessed um, to hiring um, Hitman to kill her parents and it only worked on one. So only her mother was dead. So 
as you can tell, Jennifer got life sentence um, with no chance of parole for 25 years for um, hiring um, for first degree murder, attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And yeah, she was not she could not get any parole. And um, from what I've read as well, it turns out that her father and her brother have a restraining order against her. Um, So she is not allowed to come near them at all. And yeah, her and Daniel, I don't think are not together anymore. So that shows that their love was probably not that strong in the first place. Um, Yeah. And so this is just basically a really sad story because I could tell that her parents probably just really loved her and wanted the best. And although it was a really unfair situation, I really don't think that it could have, it should have went to this point where she had to basically kill them to feel like she got freedom. Yeah. um, I feel like, I'm not going to speak for, like, every immigrant parent, but I feel like for a lot of them, like, their love language is different than um, maybe some other people's, and maybe, like, their love language is, you know, like, wanting her to do best in school, and maybe they just weren't aware of how controlling they were being, um, you know, so sometimes you can be something, like, without meaning to be it, um, but I just... Uh, it just seems very crazy to me about like our whole plan about like um hiring hitmen to like, come to her house and like kill her family and so she could get away with it um like her boyfriend and that was that's like a one crazy plan and i'm like i'm glad it didn't work out and that um as sad as it is that only one person died instead of the whole family um so i'm really glad that her plan did not work me too um yeah, it's it's crazy. And I feel really bad that she allegedly had this childhood because again, this is all like allegedly people testified that they were like this. And she also claims that they were like this, but we never know like what happened for sure. Um, But it's very sad. Um, And yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I am going to um, go into my second story and this one is i don't know if you heard this but this is an italian serial poisoner who became a legend and i'm not exactly sure how to pronounce her name but some it's like i looked up the pronunciation and it's like julia but it's like spelled g-i-u-l-i-a tofana have you heard of her um no i have not heard of her or if i have i forgot um, okay, I'm just going to, like, refer to her as Tafana because I cannot pronounce her first name. Okay. So, um, like, to understand, like, why she did what she did, you just have to, like, understand um, that this whole, this whole, like, serial killer thing happened because of unchecked patriarchy. Because in 16, this happened, like, centuries ago so in 1633 in italy um men had all the power and it often meant that most of these times women suffered untold abuse and they had no standing in society very few opportunities to better their situations and the only thing they could do was marry and hope that their husbands would treat them decently and that um or they could remain single and rely on sex work to survive or they could become a widow. And the third choice, being a widow, was the preferred choice among the Valdera classes, um, you know, for women stuck in bad marriages with violent husbands who couldn't count on the law for help. Um, because in the Valdera classes, 
who are people going to believe, the woman or the man? In that time, mostly the man. So women couldn't really count on the law or anyone to help them. And even if like their spouses didn't physically harm them, at that time, men had accepted the idea that women were property, meaning that they didn't get much say in their own lives. And how do these women achieve freedom? The solution was poison. And no one was more skilled at crafting and packaging deadly poisons for Italian ladies in the 17th century than Tofana. So she was born in Palermo, oh sorry, she was born in Palermo in the year 1620, and her mom was the infamous Tofania de Amado, and she was executed for murdering her own husband in 1633. And it is rumored that this poison recipe was passed down from her mother to her daughter. And even if it wasn't the case, um, Tofana herself was very skilled in brewing like all kinds of poisons and remedies and things like that so she moved um at a young age she moved from sicily to naples to rome to expand her black market trade because obviously she couldn't sell this poison like outright Mm -hmm. you know because she had to keep it under the covers because (laughs) people found out she would be executed just like her mother would and so um and she had like a soft spot for women who were trapped in loveless marriages, abusive marriages, suffocating relationships. And so she started selling toxins to help them escape. And with the help of her um, daughter, so Tofana's daughter, a group of trusted associates, and um, people speculate that a priest was also involved. She launched an underground ring of criminals from her apothecary shop. So she had like a shop, an apothecary shop as like a front, but really she was selling toxins to these women who were stuck in terrible marriages. Um, And like, again, to like those who did not know that that's what she was doing, people thought that her business was cosmetics, that she stole, that she sold powders and liquids um, to enhance women's beauty. And that made it easier to disguise her best selling product, Aqua Tofana. So Aqua Tofana was coveted, um, and so people who didn't suspect the thing thought that it was a face cream or oil used by the Italian ladies to preserve their youth, um, and it came in a bottle or a powder case that was labeled Manna of St. Nicholas of Bari, which was a popular ointment for blemishes. Made with a mixture of lead, arsenic, and belladonna, Aqua Tofana contained some of the same ingredients as normal cosmetics at the time, which helped it blend in on a woman's nightstand or vanity. And again, I'm not I'm sure many of the husbands had no knowledge of cosmetics at the time, so they were none the wiser that their wives' beauty regimen was their death warrant. And another element that made her poison so masterfully deceitful was how it killed its victim. So it went in doses. So the first dose, you would dilute it with some kind of liquid, which would cause physical weakness. And then when you gave the husbands the second dose, it would cause second, it would cause stomach aches, vomiting. And then when you gave them the third and the fourth dose, it would take care of the rest. And then the method of administering it, like with the doses, meant that the doctors believed the death was caused by some unknown illness or disease. So people thought there was this unknown illness and disease going around because so many husbands were dying. And no one could figure it out 
like what was causing them to die because the way that these women would kill their husbands was very deceitful. And then the slow nature of the poison poisoning meant that the victims had their chances to get their affairs in order and their wives were there to exert their influence over what the order looked like. And the deaths, those tragically young lives lost to their sick beds, would have never believed anything more. And because the poison was undetectable, the murders um sorry, because the poisons were undetectable, her business flourished. And she was careful to only sell to ladies that she knew or women who were wedded by past clients. And unfortunately, one customer, a young woman who got Aqua Tafana, was planning her husband's death, got cold feet. And so after mis- mixing a few drops of that um, toxin um, into her husband's soup, she panicked and she begged him not to eat it therefore revealing the criminal activities of Tafana and her accomplices. And the husband forced his wife to give up the aqua Tafana, the toxin, and the rest of the network of poisoners, and he soon got the police involved. And Tafana, who was beloved by the people, especially the woman, both powerful and poor, um, who she helped, um, like, had, like, so because of like her reputation, people weren't like very quick to like assume, oh, she's killing people or that her um, products are toxic because she was so well-beloved by women. Mm-hmm. Anyways, she got word of her warrant before the authorities came knocking and she was granted sanctuary by a local church until a rumor began to spread that she poisoned the city's water supply. And then the government took action and subjected her to horrific torture. And overall, she confessed to killing 600 men from 1633 to 1651 in Rome alone, though that number could be higher or lower given that her confessions came under duress. And it is believed that she was executed in 1659 along with her daughter and the associates that had worked with her. And dozens of lower class women were also executed after it was found that they were customers of her and many of the upper class ladies were imprisoned. So the lower class got executed, but the upper class got imprisoned. But what is very remarkable about her legacy is how it, how it's become this sort of folklore that continues to pop throughout history. Her poisons and proofs of power directly influenced the affairs of poison in 17th century France, um, leading to the rise of La Voisine. I'm not sure what that is, but um, also the attempted murder of King Louis. Um, the 14th so they had suspected that her poisoning her product that would allow women to poison husbands took part in King Louis the 14th attempted murder and on his deathbed the famous composer Wolfgang Mozart allegedly blamed his sudden and mysterious illness on um, Aqua Tafana her product and he exclaimed that I am sure that I have been poisoned. I cannot get rid of this idea. Someone has given me aqua tafana and calculated the precise time of my death. If poison is truly a woman's weapon, no one has wielded it like, again, I don't have to pronounce her name, but Julia, Julia Tafana. So basically, um, like this is real. It happened. Um, and she's suspected of killing 600 men and her, like this whole idea of her using this 
poison that was disguised as a beauty product to kill people, um, you know, was passed down again, seen with like the attempted murder of King Louis XIV. And then also Wolfgang Mozart claiming that he was poisoned by Aqua Tofana, which is how she became very, very famous and is known as one of the most famous women serial killers in Italy and in the rest of the world as well. Wow. I don't know. I think I'm like really desensitized to this desensitized to the story because there's so many um, novels that like make this kind of thing sound really cool. I don't know how to describe that. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I just feel like there's so many books about like women who like kill men um, using like poison or something. And it's some sort of like badass kind of thing. Um, And it's actually kind of really scary that um, she was like poisoning so many people. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I understand where they came from because at that time, yeah. women had no say in anything yes. and people were trapped. But I just feel like, um, like, she killed at least, like, alleged 600 men. That is, like, an insane amount of men. But I feel like at that time, women thought that that was the only escape from these people. So, I mean, I guess I under- I do understand, like, why she did it and why the wives did it. But the fact that, like, the lower class women got like the most severe punishment and upper class women got like imprisoned or like banished from Italy is like so crazy to me but I guess that's how like society works back then yeah that's horrible and very scary um but wow those four stories were really really interesting I think we picked really good ones and if you guys want to hear us talk about true crime again then we'd be happy to do so because we are very interested in researching all this stuff as you can tell because we have so many details and facts um but if you want us to do that make sure to go follow us on instagram so you can dm us and let us know yeah our podcast is dedicated to sharing advice mistakes confessionals and giving you peace of mind on all things impacting teens today because it's not just you worrying about even the little things it's us too we hope you'll join us next time bye